This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. As I was spending time in our community groups over the past couple weeks, I was really impressed of the Spirit by how many of you have been really wrestling with heaviness. And we kind of spoke about that during our time of worship. But the theme that I, that I found that kind of constantly showed up in our discussions were that people were, were really wrestling with heaviness. For some of you, fear. For some of you, a lack of sleep. For some of you, even just feeling tormented in your mind or, or battling emotional unhealth or unwellness. And I really felt like the Spirit of God said it's, it's time to really, as a church, engage in what it means to wage war the way Jesus calls us to as a church. And so the title of my message today is Winning the Spiritual Battle. And it's actually been a minute since we've done a, a talk on spiritual warfare as a church. So you came on a fun day. <laughs> and we're going to have fun as we jump into this today. But it is the month of October here in Utah a time where everybody kind of likes to fly their freak flag a little bit higher, and uh, a time particularly where people love to celebrate Halloween and love to celebrate uh, the demonic, and, and I, I think there's just something kind of in the air that's particularly attractive to unclean spirits. And we're gonna discuss this a little bit today because I know for some of you this is new language, or maybe you've read your Bible and you've seen this and you've never actually dived into what it means. So when discussing things like unclean spirits or even the demonic or spiritual warfare, there are gonna be some people that are gonna disagree with what I'm about to say today, with some of the assertions I'm about to make. And you know what, that's okay. But as your pastor, I want you to hear my heart. I want you to be well-equipped to fight the battle that God has called every one of us to fight and to win, amen? And as your pastor, if I didn't equip you, I would be doing you a disservice. And so as a church, we're gonna do this today. We're gonna talk about what it means to win the spiritual battle that all of us are called to fight and win, amen? With that said, turn with me to Acts chapter eight. We're gonna begin right there in verse four. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what it says. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, say Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So after kind of moving forward a little bit in the story and picking up, we see that because of the persecution that was arising in Jerusalem. Can I just stop right there? Persecution has always been the story of Israel. It's always been the story of Jerusalem. And here in this moment in Acts chapter eight, we see that the persecution of the followers of Jesus, the disciples, the apostles themselves, had gotten so great that it causes them to become scattered. Now, interestingly enough, what was the commission that Jesus gave his followers in Acts 1.8. It was to do what? It was to go to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. What was the problem? They were all huddled up together in Jerusalem. <laughs> they weren't leaving Jerusalem. You know why? I think it was because it was comfortable. I think it was because it was familiar. How about you? How does your life respond to things that are uncomfortable? For most of us, we like our routine. We like the familiar. We like things that tend to not uh, provide us uh, a great degree of risk. Many of us live our lives trying to manage our risk, to mitigate that, to insulate ourselves from it. 
But here in this moment, persecution has caused the disciples to become scattered. And as an aside, I want to say that sometimes it takes a persecuted church for us to go and do the things that God is actually calling us to do. So for many of us right now, when we see the persecution that's taking place in the earth, whether it be in Iran or China or Israel or Peru or Brazil or even here in the United States of America, come on somebody. We have to remember that it's not always necessarily a bad thing because it may just shake us up. It may just cause us to go to the places God's called us to go and to do the things he's called us to do. That was for free. Verse seven. Now the disciples are scattered and as a result of their preaching Jesus, people are delivered from unclean spirits. Here's what it says. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many, say many. They came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. And so here we are. It's a little bit further in the story. And what, what's going on here in Samaria? The same thing that was happening in Jerusalem. The, the sick are being healed. The, the paralyzed are actually becoming well. The, the lame are being transformed by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit operating on the life of, of the church. And it says that there was much joy in the city. You know what our prayer is as a church as a people that love God and that are here in this city to help people, our, our prayer is that there would be much joy in this city. That Salt Lake City, when people would speak about her, wouldn't speak about the opioid addictions. They wouldn't speak about the depression and the isolation, but that we would be a, a city marked by great joy. You know what it's gonna take for us as a city to be a city marked by joy? It's gonna take us getting out of our comfort zone and getting out into the streets and into the, the lives of our friends and neighbors and beginning to speak the word of God in boldness and not being afraid to be who God's called us to be, amen? That's my cry for this church. That's, I hope, your, your heartbeat as well. So to begin with, what is an unclean spirit and where do they come from? Like many things in the scriptures, we're not always given super clear or direct answers but we are given a surprising amount of really helpful clues. So buckle up, here we go. Go with me to Genesis chapter six, beginning in verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. Verse four, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now time out with me for a moment. We're gonna talk a little bit about the Nephilim here for a second. Dr. Michael Heiser, a renowned Old Testament scholar who recently just passed away this year. Here's what he has to say about this passage and I wanna be very particular in how I thread this needle today. Here's what he said. The sons of God are the, what's known as the Bene Elohim, the, the lesser Elohim or, or divine angels that transgress the divinely ordained boundary between heaven and earth by producing children with human women. Some of you are like, did he just say what I thought he said? Yes, he did. And these children are referred to as the Nephilim. And the term Nephilim doesn't mean fallen one, it actually means giant. It's where we get the term giant from in the Bible. Now, later in biblical history, during the days of Moses and Joshua, the Israelites, the Hebrews, run into groups of these giants called the Anakim. Say it with me, Anakim. 
So we have a, a giant clan called the Anakim, and we see it in Numbers chapter 13. It tells us explicitly that the Anakim came from the Nephilim, that they are the offspring of the Nephilim. And then these giants continue to have offspring, and they go by other names. Here's some of the other names, the Emim, and the Zamzumim, and the Rephaim. And we see that all in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. If any of you want to go check this out later, it's a fun read. These are the people, these are the, the offspring of the Nephilim that stood in the way of the people of God stepping into their land of promise that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does God do? God commands Joshua, and we see it in the book of Joshua, to go in and to wipe these giant clans out, to fully conquer them and eradicate them. Full stop. How are we doing so far? Good. So you're telling me, Pastor Jason, that there are divine beings that somehow came down and slept with human women and produced offspring? That's what the Bible says. You're telling me that these offspring become living giants in the land? That's what Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 2 and 3 says. And you're telling me that God commands Israel to wipe them all out? That's what the book of Joshua tells us. Now, if you're a curious inquirer like me, you're going to notice a very interesting tidbit as you go back through and read some of these passages. But I want you to to check out this clue that Joshua gives us right here in Joshua eleven twenty two, Let's put it up there. And it says this, there was none of the Anakim, right, the offspring of the Nephilim, left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some of these remain. Gaza, anybody hear anything about Gaza lately? Okay, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Now, we know from the story of David, later in David's life, David faces off with a giant named Goliath. And, and where's Goliath from? Gath. He's one of the offspring of the Nephilim, the Anakim. Also interesting to note is that every one of these cities mentioned here, all three of these cities mentioned by Joshua were Philistine cities. Philistine cities. They were, Philistines were actually originally Hittite invaders from uh, what is now considered modern Turkey. And they came to the land of Canaan through the Mediterranean Sea to conquer and take over the land. From the sea, they came to the land to conquer and take over. And where did they begin their conquest? They began right in the coastal south in a place we now call the Gaza Strip. You know where we get the modern word Philistine from? It's actually from the Greek word for Philistine, which is Palestine in the Greek, which is how we translate Palestine today. With regards to this conflict that we see now in Gaza, I want to say this. Might I suggest to some of us, and for those of you watching or listening to this online today, that this conflict goes back a lot further than we recognize. That it actually has historical ramifications that are tied to this land that is being contested right now as we speak. And that actually behind it has a greater spiritual conflict regarding these Nephilim and these fallen angels or divine beings or bene Elohim, however you want to refer to them. More on that in a moment. I also mentioned the word Rephaim today. The Rephaim were one of the giant clans that we see mentioned in Deuteronomy 2 and 3 and Joshua 13. And here again, I want you to hear what, what Dr. Michael Heiser, a renowned Old Testament scholar, has to say about them. He says this, in the Old Testament, the Rephaim are described as giant warlords but also as frightening, sinister, disembodied spirits or shades of the underworld, which is the place called Sheol in Hebrew. The disembodied spirits of these giants were associated with the realm of the dead or the abode of the dead. Additionally, the Rephaim have another 
horrible or wicked association. Are you ready for it? There's actually nearly 10 references in the Old Testament to a place called the Valley of the Rephaim. Joshua 15 and 18 tell us that the Valley of the Rephaim was actually joined to another valley, the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Hebrew, the word Hinnom is Gehenom. It's actually the word we get the word Gehenna from, which we translate in our Bibles to hell. It's the historical place outside of Jerusalem where the people would sacrifice their children in fire to Baal. It was a place referred to as as the apocalyptic place of God's judgment. It's the place that Jesus speaks about in all of his synoptic gospels. He teaches on hell. It's the place in Jeremiah 7 where all these detestable things took place. Now, I want to say this. There are no coincidences in Scripture. All these things are connected for a reason. And if I had more time today, I could point out more of them to you. But for the sake of time and to get to the material I want to cover, I want to say this. The Hebrew or the Jewish understanding of the origin of the demonic or of unclean spirits has ancient ties to these evil spirits from the departed Nephilim, from the departed Anakim, and from the departed Rephaim giants that we see right here in the Old Testament. Now, with that in mind, maybe, just maybe, my hope is that some of you might understand why God wanted Israel to deal with them so severely. One of the criticisms that I hear a lot of times from people that do not believe is that God is somehow a bully in the Old Testament and somehow a God of love in the New. That somehow in God telling Israel to wipe out and conquer the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Nephilim, and all of their offspring, that he was somehow a bully in doing so. Well, as we'll see here in just a moment, there's a reason why he wanted them to do this. And this leads us to Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus shows up on the scene to do what? To set people free that are oppressed of the devil, that are full of unclean spirits. These spirits of the departed Nephilim, Anakim, and Rephaim that are terrorizing the people. Speaking on the subject, Jesus had this to say about unclean spirits. These disembodied spirits in Matthew chapter 12. Beginning in verse 43, it says this, then when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What we're seeing happen in this evil generation is first and foremost not political, it's not racial, it's not even economical, it is demonic. And Jesus wants us to understand that we actually have authority as his followers to deal with this. Before we get to the authority piece, let me back up and say this. We learn a lot about what unclean spirits do when they begin to occupy a person. And here's what we learn from them. We know from this text right here in Matthew 12 that they can habit people. Later in the New Testament, we see Jesus cast demons out of people and they go into pigs. We know they can inhabit animals. Jesus here says that they're restless without a home, meaning they're always looking for a host. They're always looking for an open door. They're always looking for a way in. He says that they can bring other spirits with them. Here it says that they bring seven other spirits. Later in Luke, I believe it's chapter four, Jesus talks to the spirits and he says, what's your name? And they say, we are legion for we are many. So we know that many spirits can come and occupy and talk through people. They can harm people, but they also have limitations to their power and they must obey the voice of God. 
They must obey the voice of God. And they, they cannot do anything without any actual authority or permission to do so. Now, earlier in Mark chapter one, Jesus shows up on the scene. And if you haven't read Mark's gospel, let me encourage you. I call Mark's gospel the, the gospel for the MTV generation because it just gets right into the fray. Right from the beginning, Jesus is already casting out demons and setting people free and doing amazing things. But here's what it says in Mark chapter one, verse 23 through 27. We actually see Jesus deal with some of these unclean spirits with the authority that God has given him because of his being anointed with the spirit. Here's what it says, 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed. The people were amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The first point I want to make today is this. God has given us authority over every unclean spirit. God has given us authority over every unclean spirit. As disciples of Jesus and those that are filled with the spirit that carry the name of Jesus in the world, we have been given authority over this reality. And how do we know this? Because Jesus tells us so right in Luke chapter 10. Let's read it. We're going to move quickly today because I got a lot to cover. Verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As a courageous follower of Jesus, I want you to recognize that God has given you authority over what? All the power of the enemy, not over some, but overall, say it with me, overall. And for some of you that are wrestling with fear that have opened doors or opened windows for the enemy to come in and to have influence in your life, I wanna tell you that God today, through the power of his Holy Spirit, wants you to close the door, wants you to close the window and understand your true authority as a son of God, as a daughter of God. He says, I've given you authority to do this, to tread on serpents and scorpions. Sometimes people take that literal, but I actually believe that what he's referring to here are the powers of the demonic. How do I know that? Because he goes on to qualify over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. The reality is that people who are oppressed of the evil one are constantly in pain. They're constantly hurting. And how many of you know that hurt people hurt people? That's not the reality that God wants for our lives. He wants us to understand our authority. Now, here's what he doesn't want us to do. He doesn't want us to make a big deal about it. Right? What does he say? Don't rejoice in the fact that the spirits, the unclean spirits, the spirits of the Rephaim, Anakim, and Nephilim are now subject to you. No. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That your names are written in heaven. Now some people, they set up conferences and they make a big deal about this and they parade this authority around. And that's not really what Jesus wants for us. As a church, that's not what we're about either. But he doesn't want us to forsake the fact that he has given us authority. He wants us to know that. And yes, there's coming a time, we believe, a time where, where Jesus is going to judge even the unclean spirits that continue to terrorize people on the earth today. The Bible speaks of a second death, which refers to a lake of fire that Jesus is going to round up the devil and all of his cohorts and all of the evil spirits and cast them into in the end of things, which is amazing. But it also means that Satan's time is short. And because his time is short, he's trying desperately right now to bring confusion, to steal, to kill, to destroy, to pervert, to maim, to do whatever he can. And that's what we're seeing play out right now. People that have, that have come under his influence, that have been deceived and lied to, 
that have been indoctrinated from the time they were little children now believe that they're serving the purposes of God for their life by murdering, maiming, raping innocent women and children. And I know like you, our hearts are crushed by what we see and what, we, what we're experiencing right now in the world. But can I tell you, this has been going on for a long time. This goes back thousands upon thousands of years. We need to understand that God has not turned a blind eye to this. He's very aware of what's happening in the earth and that he has actual plans to do something about it. And I wanna, I wanna say that today to give you hope. But here's what he wants us to know in the meantime. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says this, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. But God wants us to know and understand our authority. Number one, he's given us authority over every unclean spirit. Number two, God has given us heavenly weapons to fight with. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says this. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is his, his encouragement to the church. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of the flesh. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these weapons of warfare that Paul's referring to? Let me just give you a few of them today. Are you good with that? Number one, prayer. We've already seen that the apostles in the book of Acts prayed. And when they prayed, God moved in their life with power. With power to destroy strongholds, to set people free, to see the lame walk, to see those who were ill and sick become healed. Beloved, prayer is powerful. It's so much more powerful than we understand. And Jesus tells his followers this earlier on when they encounter an unclean spirit that they're wrestling with and they're having, for some reason, a real struggle to cast this thing out. And here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter nine, verse 28 through 29. And when he had entered his house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast this thing out? And he says to them, this kind of spirit cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some translations also add the word fasting. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, so most modern day translations omit that word. But the truth of the matter is this, prayer is powerful. And he wants us to be a praying people. As a church, this is why you've heard it said, Mike's heard it said a thousand times. Some of you have been with us from the start of this thing. I've heard it said, we are passionate about prayer. prayer. Because prayer is one of the weapons that God calls us to fight with as the people of God. The reason some of us are still under the oppression or the heaviness or the weight of the demonic is because we don't pray. Because we have things in our lives that are relatively pretty taken care of, right? Things are relatively considering everything that's going on in the world pretty good. And so why do we need to pray? You know, like I got a smartphone for that. <laughs> I, got a, I got an iPad, I got a, <laughs> why do I need to pray? Yeah. A lot of us experience things that God never intended us to experience because we're, we're leading or living prayerless lives or we're under the weight of things that he doesn't want for our lives. Jesus would say this, ask and it shall be given. So let me ask you this question. Do you ask for power when you pray? Do you ask for power when you come before the Lord in your prayer time? Can I encourage you to do that? Because God wants you to see prayer as powerful. When we pray, we're not just sending out well wishes or good vibes to the universe. Come on. We're entering into Spiritual warfare, to fight and win the battle that God's calling us to fight and win, amen? Another, another weapon of our warfare, I would say, is praise and worship. Praise and worship are, are weapons that God's given us to destroy or dismantle the work of the enemy in our homes. And one of the things I like to do is, 
when, when we feel that, 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 that oppressive thing try to come against us, dude, we just blast some praise and worship and we just go after it. And we just start to declare the reign and rule of God because when you praise and worship, you declare the reign and rule of God in the place that you worship him which is why altars matter. What's an altar, Pastor Jason? An altar is, is essentially a physical place constructed as a, a place to offer prayer and praise and worship. And we, we see it all throughout the Bible. Jacob did this in Genesis chapter 35, verse three. It says, then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You know what altars do? They remind us of the presence of God. They remind us of the God who's been with us, who brings us through the fires, who brings us through the deep waters, who is with us in our time of distress. That's why I, I, I tried to encourage some of you in our community groups these last few weeks. You're not alone. You're not alone. Not only are people in this church with you, but the God of heavens is with you. The captain of the angel armies is with you, and he will see you through whatever it is that you face. We believe that. So altars remind us of the presence of God. They're physical reminders of a spiritual reality. Altars also remind us not just that God is with us, but that God is jealous for our worship. Like a, uh, like a bridegroom with his bride, he's jealous for our worship. I would say that the main battle going on in the world today is a battle over worship. Who's gonna get your worship? Who's gonna get your heart? Does Jesus have your heart? Or are you like those that he criticized who praised him with his lips, but whose hearts are far from him? See, that was the prophetic indictment upon the people is they got really good at saying all the right things, but they weren't living it. And that's the calling for us, the church, to live this thing out. I also want you to recognize that, that not only do altars remind us that God's with us and that he's jealous for our worship, but it means that we're also to be very careful about what kind of altars we allow to become constructed in our lives. Exodus 34, verse 11 through 14. Observe what I command to you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go and lest it become a snare in your midst. Some of you have made covenants with the enemy in your home with the things that you watch, the things that you entertain yourself with, the open doors that you give to the evil one and then you wonder why there's a snare in your midst. You wonder why your life's falling apart. You wonder why you can't keep it together. You wonder why the same problems that your parents wrestled with are now the problems that you're wrestling with. Can I tell you, you may have a snare in your midst. You may have made a covenant with the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. What am I talking about? With idols and things that are false gods and false powers and principalities in our life. So what's the response? Verse 13 tells us, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous and is a jealous God. What is God's response to these altars and what he wants us to do about them? To tear them down, to break them down. Now I'm not saying you have to throw all of your secular music into the fire. I did that when I was a teenager, by the way. It was fun. But it may mean that you need to do that. It may, it may mean that you need to like cancel your Netflix. It may mean that you need to like throw your, your, your smartphone away if it's causing you to stumble. What did Jesus say? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. He didn't mean that literally. He meant it hyperbolically. But the point behind what he was trying to say is that if there are things that you've made covenants with, that you've aligned your life with that are causing you to stumble, that are causing you to be distressed, you need to tear it down. 
You need to cut this stuff down and break it apart and cut it down. What were the ashram? These are these poles that these ancient tribes would build as representatives to the gods that they worshiped, to the Baals that they worshiped. And these things had come into alignment with Israel because Israel didn't wipe out all of the Nephilim and wipe out all the Anakim and deal with the Rephaim hundreds of if not thousands of years earlier. And as a result, they married in with them and they embraced them and they came into alignment with them. What am I saying? As the people of God today, the temptation remains for us to do the same to marry our culture instead of being prophets to our culture, to allow the influence around us to become the influence in us, rather than to actually do what he's telling Moses to do here and the people to do here, which is to tear it down. What does Paul say? I've given you weapons of warfare to demolish, to tear down strongholds that are in your life. Anything that exalts itself against the minor knowledge of Christ in your life is an enemy, not a friend. Part of the problem of trying to build a new altar while allowing the enemy's altar to remain is that it will always be a snare in our midst, an open door, a place where unclean spirits and the demonic can have dominion or influence. What are those influences today? Maybe not the Jebusites, parasites, Hittites, perhaps pornography, perhaps debauchery, perhaps sexual immorality, perhaps drunkenness or covetousness. All of these things open doors for unclean spirits to come and work. Colossians 3.5 says this, Therefore, people of God, friends of God, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? Because our God is a jealous God. Because he doesn't want our lives to be destroyed. Because he doesn't want you to live with depression and anxiety and have a doctor prescribe and over-prescribe medication that's going to keep you out of your right mind that he actually wants you to have as those who are inheritors of a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. We are the most overprescribed generation on the planet. And I'm not against medication. I'm not against doctors or medicine. Please hear my heart. For those of you that know me, you know that's my heart. But I think that for many of us, we're trying to fight in the flesh a battle that we need to win in the spirit. And as a result, we've turned to things to try to help medicate problems of things that God doesn't want us just to live with, that he actually wants us to be healed from. And this church believes that. And I will go down swinging for that. I will go down, put my reputation on the line that God still heals, that God still delivers, that the same power that we saw in the early church is for us today. The wind and fire of God that would rest on our lives. That's what he wants for us. But he tells us that we have a part to play. And here it is. We got to put it to death. We got to tear these altars down. We got we to cut these things down. I've hunted and killed a few things in my day. I can tell you that those things that I've put to death, they're not coming back to life. Last year, I took my son on a, a wild hog hunting trip in West Texas. It was pretty awesome. It was like 118 degrees, 105% humidity. It was intense. I'll never do it again. But we did it, right? And we killed 150-pound wild hogs. Big old nasty, mean-looking sucker. Can I tell you that hog is not going to come back to terrorize me? It's dead. You know why? because we put them to death. Here's the point I want to make, and I want to be cavalier about this. There are things in our life that God wants us to put to death. But here's what we do. Rather than put those things to death, we adopt them in as pets. What if Liam and I had brought that wild hog home and tried to train it, tried to domesticate it? Oh, this little guy, he can, he can live with us now. Probably would have woken up with all of my arms and limbs chewed off. And some of you, that's a picture of your life in the spirit. You've adopted pets into your life that God actually wants you to put to death. You've made covenants with false gods and altars and idols, and God wants you to tear those things down. And that's the invitation for us.
So to understand the power of this, praise and worship is not just the three or four songs that we sing. It's the lifestyle that we live. It's the choices that we make. It's the way that we work. It's the way that we treat our friends, our neighbors. It's, it's all encompassing of what? Of worth-ship to God. Of telling of the worth of the one that we're serving and loving and honoring with our bodies, with our temples, with the decisions we make. Amen? But altars also remind us that Satan is an enemy of our soul and that he has one agenda, and that is to do this, to kill, steal, and destroy. He hates you. He doesn't love you. Evil does not love you. It is not your friend. Oh, you know, I'm just gonna like dip my toe in. What's that old killer song? You know, Satan's water ain't too sweet. You don't have to swim right now, but you can dip your feet. That's the line. And the idea is that, oh, just a little bit of evil ain't too bad, right? Just a little bit of darkness. I'm just gonna fool around with witchcraft in the month of October. That's the month I do it. Come on, somebody. I'm not here to rain on anybody's Halloween parade today. I'm not here to be legalistic about it, but I want you to understand the reality behind the evil one who does not love you. He hates you, and he hates you because of what you represent. You represent the very image and likeness of God, the one that he rebelled against from the start. You represent the imago Dei, and in the Latin is the word image of God. It's, it's this, Genesis 1, 26, 27. In the beginning, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Why is there such a battle today with regards to transgenderism, this assault on gender and the body? You wanna know why? Because Satan is inspiring it. Because he hates your image of God. He hates that God made you male and female. And he'll do whatever he can as a non-gendered demonic being to come against you and distort your understanding and reality of who God says you are. The demonic aren't male or female. What are they? They're they and them. He hates the image of God in the earth. And you and I as sons and daughters of God restored, redeemed, forgiven, justified, sanctified, holy, and anointed represent what that image is supposed to look like. The, the image of God for man and woman to dwell together in the garden, the Edenic vision for our lives was always this. And so here we are, and we see it playing out in our culture today, the corruption of this, the, the, the assault of this. And additionally, our, our, our culture under this influence of the evil one is not only trying to assault the image of God in your life and in mine, but it's trying to erect a new altar in place of the family altar. Just like we, what we saw with Jezebel and her false prophets of Baal, this is exactly what they did in Israel. The minute they were given access and a window of opportunity to come in and to rule and reign in the, the northern and southern kingdoms, what did they do? They brought their Baals with them. They brought their idols with them. They brought their altars with them. And what did they do? They tore down the altar of the Lord and they erected their own false altar to Baal. And they begin to worship and they begin to inspire the culture of the people of God in this way. One of the reasons why I believe that what we've gone through over the past few years should not discourage us but should encourage us is because God is trying to get the Jezebel, the demonic, the influence of Baal out of our lives, out of our homes, out of our marriages, and out of our church. And I'm going to have to just kind of put on profit hat here for a moment because I believe that this has been the core issue that we've wrestled with here in the West. It's not, does the preacher wear skinny jeans or not? It's not, is the band paid professionals or not? It's not, do we, do we like the lights, the hazers, the smoke, the, the screens? Do we serve the full bread or the wafer? Do we have enough program? It's none of those things. 
It's that we've allowed an open door to the evil one to come and bring this influence into our lives. We have no business judging the world or throwing stones at anybody else until we get our house in order, church. And that's why as your pastor, you guys have heard my heart to be, to be salt and light with your words, to, to let your words of truth be seasoned with grace in the way that you deal with people, the way that you speak to people. And your family and the world is watching right now. I recognize it with every post that I put on Facebook or social media, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, that there are people looking for a reason to say, ah, there they all go again. There's that hypocritical Christian. Oh, there's that judgmental Christian. Oh, there's that. And you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for opportunities to show them that the God I serve brings life and life abundantly. Maybe your issue is that you're always constantly looking over your shoulder and worried about what other people think. This fear of rejection, fear of man. Maybe your issue is drugs or pornography, whatever it is. But here's what I know. I serve a God who sets people free, who delivers us from the oppression of the evil one, who brings wind and fire into our lives so that we don't have to live a life of compromise and serve Baal, but actually serve the living God. And that's what praise and worship is. It's a, it's a weapon that he gives us to fight and win this battle that we're in. Come on, somebody. This is the invitation to us, church, to not be a people marked by things that Jesus gave his life for. And I don't know what that is for you today. I know what that is for me. It's a, I can give you a whole lot of other things. But can I tell you, I'm also living proof, a testament of the grace of God for sinners to save a wretch like me I was once lost and now I'm found. Even in my rightness, I was lost and now I'm found because I accept the goodness of Jesus Christ for my life. And I accept the reality of what God wants every one of us to step into. What was Elijah's response to all this? First Kings chapter 18, verse 30, then Elijah called the people. He said, gather around. And they all crowded around him as he, what? Repaired the altar of the Lord. Can I tell you that this is what God wants for your marriage. He wants it to be repaired. There's people in this church who have seen God repair the altar of their marriage. There are people in this church that have seen God repair the altar of relationships that they had with people that hated them. There's people in this church that have seen God do this in their life. And I want to encourage you, God wants to do that in your life too. The third thing that we see as a weapon of our warfare to win the spiritual battle that God calls us to fight and win is is found right here in Ephesians 6. It's the all-time favorite scripture. It's the whole armor of God. And here's what Paul has to say about it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all that you know to do to stand firm. What we're seeing play out right now in Gaza and with Hamas and the invasion of Israel is because of this reality, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, which is why we have to understand that our real battle is with spiritual rulers, authorities, and powers. And we know that these spiritual forces, rulers, and powers have real influence over flesh and blood people groups, which is why we as the people of God need to put on the full armor of God. 
What is the full armor of God? Verse 14 goes on to tell us, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, come on somebody, and having put in on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and all circumstances to take up that shield of faith, which will give you the power to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and to put on the helmet of salvation, to lift up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying as a passionate people of prayer at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Friends, this is the armor and the weapons that God wants us to fight our battles with. This is how we fight our battles. This is how we do it. God's given us the design. So number one, God's given us the authority. God has given us heavenly weapons. And then finally today, God has already won the war. You see, our our fight, in our fight uh, in battle against spiritual forces from the unseen realm, we have to remember that God has already won the war because the end has already been written from the beginning. So no matter what we face temporarily, this side of eternity, we are on the winning side, praise God. This is why when the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, he tells the people of God to be still and see or watch the victory of God. This is why he would say things like, the battle belongs to the Lord. Stand still and see the victory of the Lord. Why would he say that? Because he already sees the end from the beginning. He's already looking from God's vantage point at the things and the conflicts that we're dealing with. That's why I have hope for Israel. That's why I have hope for the world. That's why I have hope for what God is doing in the earth. Not because of Hamas or because of what they can or can't do in the physical, but because what God is already able to and going to do and has done in the spiritual. Our God has already won the war. And we see it. We see it, and that's why Jesus would come and say in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. Our peace isn't found in putting a nice little slogan on our, bumper, on, our, on our cars, a nice little bumper sticker on our cars. Our peace is not found in our humanitarian efforts. Our peace is not found in our programs, how much money we send, care packages, or what I, I'm not against any of that, but our peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says that in me, you will have peace. The invitation for peace is found in a person and his name is Jesus. Now, if we would have stopped right there, we would have been like, hallelujah, let's go to the hometown buffet. But he says this, in the world, you will have tribulation. Time out. What? Jesus? No, I don't like that part. Lori, I don't want tribulation. You don't want tribulation. But he says in the world, it's going to happen. What we're seeing right now happen is the reality that we have to face, but But, but, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has already overcome it. He's already won the war. And Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, having disarmed the powers and the principalities and the authorities and the rulers, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has already won the war. He's already disarmed the very powers that are in violation of the kingdom of God that has come upon the earth. He's already disarmed it, meaning that if you know that, you can step into authority. If you know that when you pray and praise and worship and construct and build altars, you know that you're not just offering up words, but you're actually doing battle to push back the things that are against him and and his kingdom. That you're actually stepping into the reality that God has for you right now as a believer. Make no mistake, Jesus has triumphed, God has won, but the question that remains for all of us is, do we believe it? 
Do you believe this? Because if you believe this, you're not battling for victory, you're battling from victory. Can I tell you that when the forces of the US invaded Normandy and they achieved that great victory and pushing back the forces of Germany, the victory was already won, but it didn't play out until later on. So they were stepping into a victory that has already been declared, but hasn't yet reached the ends of the earth and people don't know it yet. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now in our lives. God has already done so much to conquer, disarm, and publicly do away with the powers of evil, one, but we're still in the battle. It's not over yet. For many of us, this is the challenge, is that we don't recognize that Satan's a conquered foe. He hasn't been eradicated yet from the land. And even a conquered foe can lie to you. Even a conquered foe can still come in and cause trouble for you. Even a conquered foe can make some, some havoc in your life. In ancient times when kings would come in and invade, sometimes they'd let the previous king still remain in the land. And the servants that were loyal to the previous king sometimes would cause uproars, revolutions, and problems, right? That's what we see in the supernatural. There's coming a day, though, when Jesus will return. The Son of God, the Messiah, not as the Galilean peasant, but as the soon and coming conquering king, triumphant and wild, like I said last week, riding upon the white horse with his angels and believers and generations behind him to wipe out and deal justly, yes, justly, with those that still oppose his righteous rule, that are still in violation of what he's already done at the cross. And there's a day appointed for that. And this is why all throughout the New Testament, the disciples are told to be of good cheer, to take heart, to understand that Jesus has already overcome. All these realities, all these words that are given to us to encourage us in our faith. That God's gonna deal with it because he is a God of justice and he is a God of love, but to reconcile his love and his justice means that these things that are still upon the earth, the enemy that's still in the land, will once and for all be eradicated. When Jesus comes and heaven and earth collide and we see a new heavens and a new earth and the presence of God fills the earth from Mount Zion where Jesus will rule and reign over all things beautiful picture. And that's what we believe. That's the testimony of the saints and the church for all ages. Amen. So the question is not today, whether we believe it. The question I want to end with is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus has done this for you? That he's disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross for you. If not, this is your moment. This is your day. This is your time. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.